0: Well, good evening, Hallows Church. It's good to see you this evening. I'm glad you're here. It's always good to uh, be back here in Fremont, especially in this capacity where um, we get to open our Bibles together and explore this next passage in the book of Mark that we've been journeying through as a church. So open your Bibles, if you would, to that passage um, that Austin read just a couple of minutes ago. That's Luke, uh, Mark chapter 8. Now, with all the chaos and the calamity all around us in this world and in our country and in our culture, it's pretty hard these days at times not to wonder how we got to this place that we're at and to, to also wonder exactly where we're headed from here. It's hard not to look around these days and ask questions like, like, what is wrong with us as a people and as a race? How are we capable of doing the things to each other that we continue to do? And why do the problems of this world seem so entrenched and so intractable to human solutions? Now, the interesting thing is that most everyone, whether they're religious or not, actually agrees in general on the ways that things should be and the way that we should treat one another. We know we're not supposed to lie or cheat or steal. We're not supposed to break the promises that we make. We're not supposed to oppress, suppress, or enslave other people. That's to be sure. We're supposed to live with justice and equity. We're supposed to treat others as we would have them treat us. And we're supposed to be generous with ourselves and with our lives. So most everyone else, most everyone rather agrees, at least in theory, that that's how we should live and that's how we should treat one another. But the truth is, we don't do it. And it's because we don't do it that explains the state of the world around us, just as it has for every generation that's come before us. The human race has experienced uh, remarkable advances and accomplishments in every possible area of human pursuit, in technology, in medicine, in psychology, and sociology, In the humanities and the arts and yet in spite of all of these life-changing advances in virtually every area of our lives the condition of the human heart does not really seem to be advancing at all and so what is it about the human heart and this human uh, condition that we can that we can know exactly what to do and we don't do it why is it that we can fall so far short again and again of who we could be and who we should be and who we actually want to be. Many different people have many different answers and explanations concerning why things are the way they are and why we are the way we are. Some would say it's all about upbringing and environment. Some would say you have to look to things like sociology and and biology or psychology. And certainly each one of those has something to offer to the conversation, right? Surely it's a multidimensional problem we're talking about. But as I study these things, I'm increasingly convinced that it's the biblical understanding of sin that most honestly and most accurately accounts for the state of the world around us. The Bible says that's the fundamental problem that we all face. We're... We're not basically good people. We're basically broken and sinful people living in a broken and sinful world. Did you know that the Bible actually teaches that sin, before it's an act or a behavior, is really a power and a predisposition, one that we will struggle to control and contain in this life. And so sin is not merely the not merely wrong thoughts or wrong actions. It's very much an inner disposition that inclines us towards those wrong thoughts and wrong actions. And what this means is that we are not simply sinners because we sin, but we're, we sin because we're sinners. And it's critical that together we understand these things because, you see, without a, without a robust understanding of the doctrine of sin, we will never be able to explain or understand in any cohesive or coherent way, what we see when we look honestly around us and what we see when we look honestly within us. If you try to go about your life believing you're basically a good person and that people in general around you are inherently good, you will make far more personal and social miscalculations in your life than you need to. And you will struggle to deal with all that life is going to throw at you. But not only that, without a robust understanding of the doctrine of sin, without uh, knowing and accepting that we're truly broken and rebellious and sinful uh, people, we will never truly be affected by the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot truly appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness and grace towards us in Jesus, apart from knowing the depths of our own depravity and the size of the debt that we owe. And so our grasp of the doctrine of sin is it's not only important, it's, it's fundamental. It's all important. And I hope we're going to see here in this passage a number of important faces and facets of sin and what we can learn from them. Now, in verse 12 of this passage, we have an instance in which the, the humanity of Jesus really comes to life through the pages of Scripture. As a man, as a human man, we know that Jesus was, he was subject to the same feelings and emotions that we are. And so when he went without food, Jesus, he became hungry. When he exerted himself for long periods of time without rest, Jesus became tired And when events were not particularly uh, going the way that uh, according to his plans and purposes at times, he even became angry. And in verse 12 of chapter 8 of the book of Mark, we have uh, the singular occasion across the whole of scriptures where we're told that we're told that Jesus sighed deeply. He sighed deeply in his spirit, we're told. And this is actually very strong language, and I think it gives us a an important glimpse into the Redeemer's heart in this moment. It's language that tells us something about some of the emotions that he was likely experiencing in this moment. Emotions like frustration and impatience. Emotions like grief and disappointment. And so I'd like to explore together with you today why I think the Savior sighed deeply in this way. And what I think he's saying to us about sin in this passage. Now, Jesus, he sighed deeply in, it was in direct response to, to his immediate circumstances. That's pretty clear. The Pharisees, they were uh, disputing and uh, demanding a sign from Jesus in verse 11. But I also wonder if in a more, in a more general sense, I wonder if Jesus may have also been sighing deeply Not only at the Pharisees, but at the the fallen condition of every human heart, and at the state of sin in which we find ourselves. I wonder if Jesus may have been sighing deeply as well at the many faces of sin we're going to see in this passage, and at at the seemingly endless ways that sin seeks to obscure the truth about him from us. Now, this is a pretty big chunk of text we're dealing with tonight, bigger than we've we're used to, I think, in this, uh, as we journey through this book of Mark, and there's quite a bit here, and it may be a bit challenging, it may be a bit convicting, and, and I hope it is. But with Jesus, there's always a future hope that should uh, frame and inform our understanding of the present. So let's, let's take this passage in honestly and humbly together in that way, in that light. We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're told that the Word of God pierces the division between our soul and our spirit. And we're told that it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And so it's in light of passages like that that we believe here at the Hallows Church that the Word of God is not merely a passive object That we examine here on Sunday evenings. It's something we allow and invite to examine us on Sunday evenings and each and every day of the week. So let's not only explore this passage together this evening, let's allow this passage to explore us. Now, up to this point in our journey through the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus performing all sorts of uh, signs and wonders and miracles. We've seen him healing diseases and ailments of various types. We've seen him liberating people from demonic oppression and harassment. We've seen him renewing and restoring lives in supernatural ways. And in the opening 10 verses of this passage, he's at it again, isn't he? We see Jesus providing miraculously for a great crowd of people, feeding 4,000 people, starting with just a few loaves, and a few fish. Not unlike the way that he did just a couple of chapters back in Mark chapter 6. But then in verse 11, look at what happens. Sometime after the feeding of the 4,000, we're told that the Pharisees they came arguing with Jesus, testing him, and seeking a sign from him. These Pharisees, they were a highly religious Jewish group who had Uh, substantial influence and power among the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. And these guys, they were butting heads with Jesus at every turn. They were harassing him, trying to trip him up, and trying to take him down. Because you see, Jesus was a threat to their status and to their reputations and to their way of life. Now granted, it's it's not entirely clear if the Pharisees themselves had observed the feeding of the 4,000 or whether perhaps they had only heard about it. But in any event, these same Pharisees who were now arguing and, and demanding another sign from Jesus had themselves seen him perform many miracles up to this point, point. and they had no doubt heard reports of many others. These Pharisees, they were keeping a close eye on Jesus because people were talking, He was attracting much attention. He was doing amazing things. And he was even talking about himself being the promised Messiah, the promised Savior who God said he would send to put everything right once and for all for his people. But the Pharisees, they had a very different idea about what the true Messiah would be doing and would be saying And so they refused to accept these claims by Jesus and by others, and they refused to accept these claims by Jesus in large part because the things he was saying and doing were not at all what they wanted or expected from from their Messiah. So one of the things we need to understand here, leading leading up to the Savior sighing deeply, is that the Pharisees, they had their own agenda concerning Jesus. They had their own expectations of Jesus, and they were very much imposing those expectations on him. From their perspective, the coming Savior, the promised Messiah, was going to to come in power. They were expecting the promised Messiah to come with a type of power and authority that would deliver them from Roman occupation and from, from Roman rule, and that would restore the integrity and the intentions of the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. And so they had their own expectations of of who Jesus needed to be and what Jesus needed to be doing if, in fact, he was the Son of God, and they would continually impose their own expectations of Jesus on Jesus very much as a condition for their acceptance of him and their belief in him. But the truth is, the Pharisees' expectations of Jesus were entirely out of alignment with the actual intentions of Jesus. And because of that, they were looking to him in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. And so they would continue to seek from Jesus more signs, better signs, bigger signs, They were looking for more signs while Jesus was looking for more faith. And rather than align themselves with Jesus and acknowledge his signs and acknowledge his identity and acknowledge his authority over them and and them and their lives, they, they instead dug in their heels deeper and deeper, we'll see, as the story goes on. They were thinking only of their own agendas and their own expectations rather than humbly and honestly considering his and I know it's easy for us to think oh those foolish Pharisees how could they possibly do that but we do it too at times don't we Jesus I'll, I'll believe you I'll, I'll trust you I'll give you my time and attention especially if you do this or do that especially if you answer that prayer especially if you give me that job or that spouse, especially if you come through for me in the ways that I think is best for me in my life. The truth is we're all seeking signs, really, but the question is whether your faith in Jesus and your commitment to Jesus is conditioned upon those signs that you're seeking from him, like it was with the Pharisees. And this can be a very subtle dynamic, I think, Think about this. If you're, if you're constantly feeling, feeling uh, unfulfilled about yourself and your life, if you're always feeling unsatisfied about your situation and your circumstances, always wanting more, always thinking you uh, deserve better, I'd ask you to consider whether that's really all that much different than you telling God that he needs to give you a better sign. Now, another thing we know about the Pharisees is that because they were so focused on themselves and their own agendas and their own expectations, they stubbornly resisted the truth about Jesus. And as we consider these things, one of the things we see about uh, sin is just how sneaky and just how slippery it can be. Because at the same time, the Pharisees dug in their heels and were stubbornly resisting and denying the truth at the same time, they kept pressing and pressuring uh, Jesus for more signs. We know from other parts of the Bible that these uh, same Pharisees actually knew something about who he was. Get this you may remember the scene in John chapter 3 when the Jewish leader, who goes by the name of uh, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, he made a clandestine visit to Jesus during the night. John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so that's pretty fascinating. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews and a leading figure among the Pharisees, he says, He says, we know. We've seen the signs. And yet these same Pharisees in public are disputing Jesus, demanding more signs from Jesus, and even going so far as to accuse Jesus of performing his miracles by the work of, by the power of Satan rather than God. And this shows us something, I think, about the subtle deceitfulness of sin in our lives. Sin at times can cause us to simultaneously know the truth and to resist it, and to refuse it, and to suppress it, and even ultimately to deny it. Malcolm Muggeridge says people do not believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. These Pharisees, they didn't want to believe the truth about Jesus, and so they they didn't believe the truth about Jesus. They believed their own lies instead because they wanted to, because really they they needed to in order to protect the life and the lifestyle that they believed best for themselves. And so these are the Pharisees coming after Jesus again in verse 11 here, disputing with him, testing him, demanding signs from him. And often Jesus would engage these Pharisees, usually in ways that would perplex and, and frustrate them in fact, But on this occasion, there would be no exchange, there would be no conversation. It says in verse 12 that the the Savior sighed deeply, and then he told the Pharisees there would be no sign, and then he got in his boat and he left. And it's at this point where we're going to get at the real uh, substance of Jesus' instruction for us today on sin. After the Savior's deep sigh and as they, as they leave that place on the boat, Jesus decides he's going to use what just happened as a, as a teaching moment for his disciples. He has a word of instruction, a word of, a word of caution for his disciples and for us based on the things that had just gone down. And the caution is in verse 15. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And so that sounds kind of cryptic, especially to us in this time and place. But but one of the things Jesus is doing here is he's going to teach us something about sin by drawing this comparison, this metaphorical comparison between sin and leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That's the caution. And so what in the world does that mean? Well, you may know leaven is what we would refer to today as yeast, And it was very commonly used and very important in Hebrew life back then, of course, primarily in the context of bread making. And we know quite a bit more now than they did then about what leaven is and how it works. But one of the things they knew about it was that if you uh, put leaven into a lump of dough, even a very small amount of leaven, it would work its way into and inside the lump of dough. And then, as long as you bake that dough soon enough, the dough would uh, would rise and there would be bread to enjoy that day. You see, once even a little bit of leaven was added to the dough, there was this internal unseen dynamic at work within the dough that would change the nature of the dough in some important ways. They knew this. They didn't know exactly how to explain this, but they knew this was happening. And so one of the things we learn from Jesus about sin through this caution to his disciples, through this comparison between leaven and sin, is that just as leaven works in an internal and often unseen way, so it is with sin in our lives. Like leaven, sin is internal. And so before sin is a matter of external actions and behaviors, it's a matter of of the inner stance and orientation of our hearts. You may recall from uh, just a few weeks back in Mark chapter 7 verse 21 Jesus said that what defiles a person has nothing to do with the external has nothing to do with what you put in your body or what you do to your body rather it's from within out of the heart of man he says that come all these forms of evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery and the list continues And so, like leaven, sin is primarily an internal dynamic that we're dealing with here. We're talking about the the inner thoughts, the inner intentions, and the inner motives of our hearts. That's where sin begins, from within. But these Pharisees, they were focused almost entirely on externals, not internals. They were focused on external appearances, external behaviors, External obedience to uh, the Mosaic laws and rituals and traditions and things like these. And Jesus would call them out actually for these things on a number of occasions. Listen to the words of Jesus that he has for the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Verse 25, he says, You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." And so sin is fundamentally an internal uh, dynamic that really needs to be acknowledged and understood as much as it's a matter of external actions and behaviors that need to be controlled and contained. Now, in addition, once, once leaven is added to the dough, you can't really see it, right? Even the baker of the bread can't really tell a recently leavened lump of dough from an unleavened lump. Because the leaven could not be seen once it got in there. It was, it was internal and it was, it was unseen. And I think what Jesus may also be saying here, and this is, this is pretty sobering, in fact, is that one of the biggest problems with sin is that it often hides from our own view. And this is an important warning, isn't it? Sin blinds us at times to its very presence in our lives. And that creates a troubling Situation, doesn't it? Because it's not easy to change the things in our lives that, that need changing when we can't actually see them. The 17th century Puritan pastor John Owen paints a pretty fascinating picture in fact of this uh, dynamic of our blindness to certain sin in our lives. He says this and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here but he says that just as a shallow brook is quite noisy think of a babbling brook And just as deeper streams are quieter, think of a quiet river running deep, he says sin often works in those sorts of ways. In other words, often when sin is at its strongest, when it's running at its deepest in our lives, it's often also at its quietest. Sin is subtle and sneaky in that way. The Pharisees, they thought they were serving God, right? They thought, in fact, they were closer to God than anyone and everyone else. And they thought that based on the things they were doing for God, and they thought that based on who they thought they were to God. But Jesus would say that you're, to them, that you're deceived and you're deceiving yourself. And this should be highly concerning to us here, friends, that even the most moral, even the most religious law abiding church going person can be more controlled by sin more bound by sin and more blind to sin than even the most blatant of sinners and so for church going people like us if you don't if you don't see your sin if you're not troubled by your sin if you don't pay much attention to it then you need to watch out you need to be aware because it may be out of your view, and it may be running deep. The Pharisees, they couldn't see it, and at times we can't either. Like leaven, sin is internal, sin hides, sin deceives. And So we need to be careful, don't we, thinking we know as much about ourselves as we may think. And if we're going to watch out and beware, we need to be willing to look, to look inside honestly. And to allow others to look inside as well, and to carefully consider the motives of our hearts. Now, another thing they knew about leaven back then is that once it was added, it would spread quickly through the lump of dough, and eventually, if it wasn't handled in the right way and at the right uh, with the right timing, that leaven would kind of take over, and it would kind of it could actually uh, ruin the entire lump of dough. And so, another thing we see is that like leaven, sin spreads and sin consumes. What we know now is that yeast is a living cell. And what it's doing is it's actually growing and multiplying and spreading throughout the dough in that way. And so leaven spreads, and under the right conditions, it spreads very rapidly. And so I think one of the things Jesus may be saying here is that you you can't simply keep... Sin in a quiet corner of your life. You may want to leave certain sin in your life alone. You may want to you may want to manage it or or minimize it, but it won't leave you alone. In fact, if you're not careful, it will begin to manage and to minimize you. Given the time and opportunity, it will uh, break out into other areas of your life. It will spread and corrupt other areas in your life if you don't watch out and if you don't beware. They also knew back then that after you put the leaven in the bread dough, as long as you you bake that dough soon enough, the dough would rise and you would have good bread to enjoy that day. But if you left that same leaven in there too long before baking that dough, it it would ruin everything. The longer it would be left in there, the more bitter and the more sour the entire dough would become until it was eventually unusable and inedible. And we know now that the reason that would happen is because the yeast in the dough is actually it's actively digesting the carbohydrates, the sugar molecules that are present in that dough. You see, the leaven uses the carbohydrates in the dough as fuel for its own survival and its own multiplication. And given the time and opportunity, that leaven will use up all of those carbohydrates And in so doing, it will suck every last bit of sweetness out of that lump of dough. It's true that sin sometimes seems sweet, especially in the beginning. But things change, they always change. It creates a sort of suction in your life. The more you get it, the more you need it, and the less satisfying it becomes. And the more evacuated you feel what used to taste sweet begins to taste sour because sin sucks out the sweetness even while it continues to spread and demand more from you now another part of the caution here as well is that leaven is that like leaven sin inflates After all, leaven is what causes the bread to rise, right? It causes it to become puffed up from within. And so it is in our own lives with sin. Sin inflates us and and puffs us up. And this was a big issue with the Pharisees. You see, they were were known and criticized by Jesus and by a number of New Testament writers for their self-righteousness, for their inflated views of themselves and their their corresponding deflated views of others. And you see this pretty clearly in the story told by Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 18, in which there's a, there's a tax collector and a Pharisee praying side by side. And the Pharisee says this, he prays like this. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, like this tax collector here. And so the Pharisees judged, they looked down on others, they thought they were better and more important than others, and they thought they were more right with God than others as well. Just like leaven, sin puffs us up from within, it inflates our own view of ourselves, often without us even realizing it. And it's more pervasive than than you might even think. In fact, did you know that if you're like most people, then you are way above average? at just about everything that you do. Get this, when researchers asked over a million high school students how well they got along with their peers, 60% of the students believed they were in the top 10%. 25% per- percent rated themselves in the top 1%. And they asked the same question of college professors. And though you'd think this group might have some additional self-awareness and self-insight, then these high school students didn't really turn out that way. Only 2% of themselves rated themselves below average. 10% were average. 63% were above average. While 25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. Now those are some interesting numbers, right? Those numbers don't really seem to add up. In fact, I'm... Pretty sure those numbers are a statistical impossibility. But that's what we do, right? It's the subtle deceitfulness of sin within us that inflates and overestimates our own view of ourselves. One researcher in this area summarized the data this way. He said, the average person believes he is a far better person than the average person. One of the clearest conclusions of social science research is that We think better of ourselves than we really are and we see our own faults only in faint black and white while seeing the faults of others in vivid color. We assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves and we all do it at some level, right? So are you aware that you do that? Because it's a pretty slippery slope in fact. And it's a pretty slippery slope because as sin inflates our view of ourselves, it then uses that inflated, that distorted view of self as a basis for comparison to other people, which leads to a false sense of superiority as well, and which leads us to judge and to look down on others. All of this fundamentally beginning from a distorted view of self that we may not even be aware of. And so that's the subtle and the slippery deceitfulness of sin. I was pretty shocked at just how much I did this when I intentionally paid close attention to my, my thought life about others. As I ran this experiment over the course of a couple of days, I found myself comparing and judging and looking down on other people all around me, sometimes in very subtle ways, sometimes less so. I found myself judging a co-worker for being particularly moody one day, which was especially bothersome because I too was feeling moody. But I, of course, had a good reason. I found myself watching television programs about politics and the presidential election and thinking, man, these people are either clowns or crooks or both. I found myself watching a reality television program. It was The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, something like that. Strictly, of course, as a sociological experiment and only because my wife turned it on first. And I remember being shocked at how ignorant and how arrogant and how ridiculous so many of those people seemed to be. I found myself driving in my car down the road, dumbfounded at the level of incompetence all around me. I found myself growing impatient and frustrated with people in public places when things did not go the ways that I... Wanted or expected. Friends, we need to be careful thinking that we're always right. And thinking that we always know best how people need to be. Because at the end of the day, having an inflated and distorted view of ourselves is it's one of the biggest reasons why some of us are so unhappy in our lives. Why we so easily get annoyed and frustrated and impatient with others. Because we believe they're not doing things the way they're supposed to be doing things, right? That is the the way that I like to do things and the way I like things to be done. And that's the essence of self-righteousness. We compare, we compete, we judge, we look down, often without even realizing it. And we cut ourselves far more slack than we're willing to extend to others. And so are you able to see that in yourself? That's an important question because some would say that the most self-righteous among us are those who don't see their self-righteousness. Some would also say that to to be growing as a Christian means that God is continually showing you new ways you're failing to see your own self-righteousness. It's sneaky and it's subtle, but it's there. It's, it's operating beneath the surface continually. And so do you know it's there? And do you see it? Do you care? We need to because it distorts everything. Now, we've been talking a lot about the Pharisees here, but I'm not so sure they're the only reason Jesus sighed deeply in this passage Because there's uh, quite a bit going on here with the the disciples as well that seems to frustrate Jesus. And to be honest, he has good reason to be frustrated with them when you look at the the turn of events that that went down. First of all, did you catch what the disciples said way back in verse 4, right after Jesus said he had uh, compassion on the crowd and he wanted to feed them? Did you notice what the disciples said to him? Basically, they said, but Lord, how are you going to do that out here in this desolate place? Now, I hope that question strikes you as a bit odd given all that we've been learning. We know from our journey in the book of Mark that these same disciples had seen Jesus perform incredible miracles up to this point. In fact, you may recall just two chapters back, he and his disciples fed a crowd of of 5,000 men out in a desolate place, Starting with just five loaves of bread and two fish, and we're told that all were satisfied. And Jesus, of course, in this passage, he takes seven loaves of bread and just a few fish, and he feeds 4,000 people, and they too were satisfied. And so, what's up with that question from the disciples? I wonder if Jesus may have been a bit beside himself the question posed to him in that moment by his disciples, and at how quickly. The disciples seemed to forget the things that they had witnessed and experienced Jesus doing in their midst and in their lives. Were they somehow confused? Were they really that dense? Were they so fatigued and so hungry that they weren't thinking straight? These disciples, they had seen firsthand Jesus doing amazing things in them, and through them, and around them, and yet. Somehow at times they would still lose sight of who he was and the things he was capable of doing for them. And so how is it that even those walking so closely with Jesus could so quickly forget his grace and all the things that he had done? But also look again at the exchange between Jesus and the disciples beginning at verse 14. This is right after Jesus sighs deeply at the Pharisees. And what verse 14 tells us is that, that uh, apparently after getting in the boat to leave that place, the disciples realized that somebody forgot to bring the food along. And then in verse 15, Jesus, he gives his caution to the disciples, right, about the leaven of the Pharisees. He says, watch out, beware. And this is his big teaching moment, right? And, and surely you'd think the disciples would be paying close attention, especially after seeing the Savior sighing deeply over what had uh, just happened with the Pharisees. But look at verse 16. This uh, This is kind of bordering on the ridiculous here. It says the disciples began again discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. It's as if they didn't even hear Jesus. It's as if the words of instruction by Jesus given to them did not register at all. And so how is it that even those closest to Jesus can so easily become distracted from the teachings that he has for them by their situations and by their circumstances, and by their immediate needs and desires? Now Jesus, he didn't engage the Pharisees in this passage, but he definitely engages the disciples in this moment. He lodges, in fact, a pretty piercing uh, rebuke against them. As the disciples keep talking about bread, in verse 16, Jesus, in verse 17, says, uh, Excuse me, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? These are, these are strong words by Jesus. And when Jesus uses these strong words, in verse 18 in particular, he's making a direct reference to an Old Testament passage in which, in which God, through his prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 12, is rebuking the nation of Israel. And he's rebuking the nation of Israel for their moral blindness and deafness. He's urging them to realize the perilous state that they were in, and he's calling them to return back to the Lord. And so this rebuke, this complaint by Jesus given to his disciples in this moment is a a further reflection, I think, of the frustration that he was feeling during these times. Jesus uses the blunt words of the prophet Ezekiel to call those who follow him to wake up, to pay attention to see and to hear, to remember and to understand. And so in light of all this, taking in the Savior's sigh, taking in the Savior's caution, taking in the Savior's complaint, I think Jesus leaves us with some pretty obvious and pretty important questions for our consideration. And so I'd ask and encourage you to consider these questions in this moment and as you go about your lives this week. Jesus asks each one of us, I think, rhetorically first, what what signs have you been seeking from Jesus and why? Second, what aspects of the gospel are you most likely to forget? That you're forgiven? That you matter? That you're loved? That God's grace is bigger than your sin? Third, how are you failing to understand and apply the gospel today? Is it making any difference in your life on a day-to-day basis? Because it most certainly should. Friends, because of sin, we live in this strange in-between time. We live in this strange tension as Christians. Our sin has been dealt with but our struggle persists. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. Talk about that struggle a little bit. Verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 17, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 18, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now hearing that and hearing everything else we've heard today about the power and the subtle deceit of sin in our lives, our situations can seem pretty bleak. It can sound a bit overwhelming, in fact. It sounds as if we have good cause for despair. But this same Apostle Paul, he was also one of the most joyful, one of the most, one of the most anchored, one of the most productive and prolific Christian leaders in all of human history. Paul was open and honest about the very real struggle with sin in his life, but he. He didn't dwell on it either, did he? He he dwelled on the cross. But underneath it all, it's because he knew the depths of his own sin that caused him to be utterly dazzled by God's grace in life-changing ways. In fact, if you listen to Paul carefully across the, the entirety of his writings, far more often than not, you're going to find him talking not about his sin, but about his Savior. And about what his Savior did for him. And About what that means to him and for him in his life. Far more often than not, you're going to find Paul reminding himself and reminding others again and again of the fact that, that friends, we've been purchased. We are new creations in Christ. We're forgiven and free. We are chosen and called. We're justified. We're adopted. We can do all things in Christ. We can count everything else as rubbish. And we can count all of the present day sufferings as light and momentary. That's how we engage the battle. Just like Jesus is teaching us in this passage, we engage the battle by remembering regularly by reminding others continually. We keep our eyes and our ears open to the truth, focusing on the Savior and what He's done rather than on ourselves and what we've done. We fight the fight this way until the fight is over and we're we're told it will be over. The tension that we feel will be resolved. The the competing interests and desires will no longer be in conflict. In time, our deepest and our strongest desires will align perfectly with God's desires. And there will be no more struggle with sin. There will be no more sickness, no more uh, disease, and no more death. One day, we won't struggle to see or hear or understand. We won't struggle to believe or to trust. But we will see him as he truly is with with eyes fully open, seeing and savoring the fullness of God, that only the most beautiful things in our lives and in this world can even begin to, to hint at. All of this, because Jesus came not just to sigh at sin, but to, but to do something about it. And his response to sin, it was decisive, we see it in fact in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Jesus who who knew no sin, who never sinned, became sin. He, he became our sin. And he became the punishment for our sin, giving his own life as a ransom for many. Also that you and I could be restored and, and redeemed and reconciled to our God through him. And so have you put your trust and your faith in that Jesus? If you have, we're going to open up the table now. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper together at this time, remembering and reflecting on the reality that Jesus gave his body and he shed his blood as his response to the problem of sin in us and by us. If you haven't put your trust and your faith in that Jesus, we'd ask that you would refrain from Uh, coming to the table at this time, but our hope and our prayer is that you would consider trusting that Jesus for the first time today. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We ask, Father, that you would use these words today to challenge us and to change us. Would you give us grace to be more aware and more alert as a people and as a church to the, the subtle deceitfulness of sin in our lives? Thank you, Jesus, for your decisive response to sin at the cross and all that means to us and for us. Thank you for the promise of a future in which our struggle with sin is over. And may that promise and may your grace change who we are, how we're living today, as we fix our gaze squarely on all that you are to us and for us. We love you. We thank you. Amen.